difference uh, marriage makes? What is the difference marriage makes to you? If you got married, some of you are, some of you have been married for a number of years, maybe some of you gone hoping to get married. What is the difference it, it makes? I had breakfast with a friend the other day. He'd been married for about six months, and we were kind of talking about the difference, you know, marriage, marriage had made in his life. And he was kind of saying, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you get to hang out with your best friend all the time, you know. You get more money, double income. There's someone maybe to cook and clean for you instead of you having to do it for yourself. But then he said this. He said, it's brought some really unexpected changes. And I was like, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. What unexpected changes has it brought? And he goes, well... It's like I don't get to make any decisions by myself anymore. I'm like, what do you mean? Well, he goes, well, I was trying to make a decision the other day and like um, my wife kept on wanting to provide input into what I was thinking. And he was like, why, why are you providing input here? Uh, I, he, he thought marriage was like, I'm just going to have my single life and then, you know, we're going to hang out and have a, like a sleepover every night. No, 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 that's not how it kind of worked. He was like, she, she, she kept on providing input into his life. Interesting, right? What's mar- what do you expect of marriage? Last week, in the first two verses of Romans 12, we were reminded of the radical difference the mercy of God made to a believer's life. Every aspect of your life was to be shaped by your relationship with with God. But just like my friend, sometimes we can kind of marginalize God's input into our lives. And last week was a, a really good reminder that God, as He speaks, speaks to every aspect of our lives. Sometimes we're like, God, why, why are you kind of speaking to this? I'm, I'm just doing my own thing. This week, Paul kind of really breaks it down as to what it means for God to speak into every aspect of your life. He, he talks about life in this world and essentially breaks the world into three main areas. A life in the church, a life amongst a community, and ultimately life in responding to enemies. So church, community, and enemies. And in all these areas, Paul has one main focus. It's this. You want to let gospel humility transform how you interact with the world. Let me say that again. In all these areas, you are to let gospel humility transform how you interact with the world. See, in all these areas, your relationship with God transforms how you respond to others. So we're going to consider those three areas this morning and see how we're supposed to live differently. So if you're following along, it's pretty simple in your bulletins. Uh, the first area we're going to think about is life in the church, verses 3 to 8. But before talking about you know, what you're supposed to do in the church, uh, Paul lays out essentially the governing mindset as to how you're th- supposed to think. This governing mindset is to fuel your action. It's to shape the way that you interact with others. And this mindset, well, it's essentially a mindset of humility. Look with me there in verse 1. What does Paul say? Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Paul wants you to see yourself correctly, to see yourself with sober judgment. But what is that? Well, it's not to have a self-inflated vision of who you think you are or who people should consider you to be. It's to think realistically about yourself. Paul gives us a a really helpful yardstick by which we are supposed to think of ourselves. How are we supposed to measure ourselves? Well, continue reading in verse 1. We're supposed to think of ourselves in accordance with the faith God has distributed each of us. In accordance with the faith God has distributed each of us. There's two kind of options as to how we kind of understand what God is, is doing here. 
some people think that God distributes different amounts of faith. So they, they look, they kind of keep on reading this in, in this uh, passage to verses 6 to 8. And we see here a number of kind of gifts or a number of ways that people serve in the church. And so some people think that the, the faith that God distributes to people is kind of like the gifts that God has given the people. So, some, so God has given some people lots of gifts and lots of faith to kind of exercise in that way and be really active and others just not as much and they just do less in the church. So some people to think, to think with sober judgment, to think of yourself correctly, is to think of yourself based on what God has given you. So in, in the negative sense, I don't think that I'm a master musician and, and a brilliant song master and, and if God just hasn't given me really awesome vocal chords. And that's why I'm not singing here on Sunday mornings, right? I think of myself correctly. But in a positive manner, I think about how God has gifted me or how He's gifted you. Maybe He's given me an ability to teach. And so I look for opportunities to do that. I think of myself as one in that kind of way. So God gives different people different amounts of faith or gifts. And, and so we think of ourselves correctly. We don't try to do what we're not gifted in, but we do try to do what we're gifted in. That's one way in which we can think about it. Another way is to consider that God actually gives everyone uh, the same amount of faith. The same amount of faith. This links to the wider context of this whole chapter, where there's this constant focus, not on the differences people have, but on the similarities. And so the measure of faith that God has apportioned people is the faith given to all people in order to respond to God and say, Jesus, I believe in you. The faith here is a saving faith. So to think with sober judgment is to think of yourselves no better, but no worse than anyone else here at church. We are all equal, saved by the kindness and mercy of God. And that's how we're supposed to think of ourselves. Both of these versions are pretty good. They have a lot, of, a lot to commend themselves. But I actually think the second way in which we read this passage, that, that everyone is the same, is the better way to read it. I think it makes more uh, co- uh, sense within the, enti- the context of the whole chapter but I think it makes most sense of the immediate context in verses 3 to 8. Let me explain. See, after talking about how people should see themselves, Paul then goes on to talk about life within the church. Look there in verses 4 to 5. He uses the imagery of a human body to explain the dynamics within a church. And he says, like a human body, uh, there are many members and they perform different functions. And so within the context of a church, there are many different people like you here are sitting next to you. And they do different things within the church. And there is a beautiful joy and a unity, even though people have unique gifts and talents in which they serve the church. However, so often when we think of different people in the church and having different roles, there's so often a pride that comes up with it. When I was growing up and I was a part of a church, I remember my, my gift was to set up chairs. That was my, my thing. Um, and to be honest, it wasn't the most exciting kind of ministry. Like I got there before anyone turned up and I had to set up chairs and I had to pack them up. And, and so often, I, it was really tempting to think that, you know, I really wasn't that important. The people that were really important were the, all the people on stage. Maybe the people that were singing or playing instruments. Because you would really notice if like, the, the, the preacher wasn't there, but hey, if you have to sit on the floor, it's not that bad, right? I was rather dispensable, but some other people were indispensable. See, the reality is, as we think about different people having different amounts of faith and different gifts, so often it can lead us to be, in some sense, 
resentful. A pride can build up saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty important. Paul wants to counter any temptation for us to be people who are proud. To recognize that your position in, in, in God's body has nothing to do with your talent or, or your worth, but your function within the body, your position, is truly by God's kindness alone. And so if God had given people different amounts of faith, it so quickly would have led people to become proud in their thinking. But if everyone had the same, then it would really lead to a sense of humility before all others. See, as we look at this passage, Paul wants you to see that each of you belongs to everyone else. It's a position of humility where you recognize that you need everyone else. The person sitting on your left, the person sitting on your right, you need them. Instead of dismissing that they are unimportant or dispensable, you embrace that not only do others perform different functions, they are indispensable to the body of Christ. Therefore, to see yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has given you is to see yourself as just no better or no worse than the others, but equally in need of them. It is to recognize that everyone plays a unique and important part in the body of Christ, that we rely and need others to do what God has gifted them as they contribute to the unity of the church. And so Paul wants us to really have a position of humility, of unity, that we are all equal and we all perform some function. But he also does want to remind you that you do have a function to perform. And so in verses 6 to 8, he kind of lists a number of ways in which people serve in the church. Ways in which people serve in the church. Uh, there is a lot to kind of speak about in these couple of verses, but I want to point out two things that we see here in these lists. Uh, the first is that this list is illustrative, but not exhaustive. It's illustrative, but not exhaustive. There are other kind of lists in Scripture, Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12, that talk about ways in which we serve in the church. And while these gift lists overlap, they're often contextual to a specific church, a specific context. And so Paul is here is giving ways in which some people might serve in the church, but it's not the only way in which you might serve. See, sometimes when we read a passage like this, they're like, oh, can I do that? Nah, 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 I, I guess I can't do anything. I think it's, it's helpful to remind ourselves this is some ways in which we might serve in the church, but it's not the only way. I think the other thing that we are to see in this passage is that this, these lists, or this list specifically, is really a call to action. She's not laying out all the possible ways, you know, kind of like a buffet option, you're like, I like that, I like that, I don't like that, and then we're supposed to figure it out. Do you notice how next to each way in which he calls people to serve, there's an imperatival force if it's teaching, then teach. If it's leading, do it diligently. This is very much a call to, to be a part of the church, not by just knowing what you can do, but actually doing it. Actually doing it. I guess as we read a passage like this, as you hear what I'm saying, you're thinking, oh, okay, I, I should be participating in the body of the church. Well, what gifts do I have? That's very natural, right? We kind of read this list and go, well, what gifts do I have? We start to wonder, well, what's my, what's my thing? What's my spiritual speciality? What's my niche in the church that kind of sets me apart from everyone else and is my unique contribution? I believe God has gifted each of us a unique way in which we serve the church, but I don't think that's the most helpful way to think about a passage like this. 
I think a better way or better question to ask of this passage is what situation has God placed me in where there are opportunities for serving? What are the specific needs confronting me that I can minister to? Why? Well, so often we're preoccupied with thinking about kind of what is really my thing that we fail to love and serve those right in front of us. There's a need to, to raise money in the church and you go, well, I don't have the gift of generosity, unfortunately, so I can't give. Or maybe we see that, you know, there's a need in, in Sunday school and we say, oh, I don't have the gift of working with kids and so, well, I, I just can't help out. Or you might say, well, I have the gift of teaching and leading, but no one wants to be taught and led, so I'm just going to sit here until people turn up and they're ready to be taught and led. See, we quickly forget that God often works through your weakness. It's ultimately not your skill or talent, but God's Spirit working you that becomes a blessing to the church. And so it becomes a mindset of humility that is to govern the way in which you approach life in the church. Too often, too often we think, what gift do I have? But we're also thinking, what will be the most satisfying to me? What do I enjoy doing the most? Gospel humility helps us to recognize that there are no better or worse positions, that ultimately we're all part of the same body. And so the aim is not our personal satisfaction, how useful we feel, but it is the growth of the body, the growth of God's kingdom. And so we should be constantly asking, what opportunities do I see? What opportunities do I see in the bulletin where people are asking for help and support? And how can I do something? How can I be part of that? Life in the church, humility driving us to consider every opportunity. And Paul not only talks about life in the church, he, he talks life about life in the community. And that's our next point in verses 9 to 16. And he once again wants us to see that humility shapes how you live. Focuses on two big things here. Um, the first is to be loving. Look there in verse 9. Uh, Paul says, love must be sincere within the context of the community. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Paul is once again calling us to remember who God is and what he has done for us. He's calling us to be people that reflect the love of God. A love that is real. A love without pretense or, or a love that, that is meaningful. What does our love like that look like? Well, verse 10, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. If you look in other translations, the last part is outdo one another in showing honor. It's this idea that your approach to others in community should be one, not one of minimalism. You're to be other person centric, yes, but there's supposed to be this persistent care for other people that is grounded in humility. What does that look like? Well, I think um, if you skip ahead to verse 15, I think that helps us out. Mourn with those who mourn, rejoice with those who rejoice. One way in which you can seek to honor others more than yourself is maybe that you celebrate their joys more than you want to talk about your own. That you comfort others in their sadness even though you are wrestling through hard things as well. There's this constant other person focus but not just other person focus, you're constantly doing, how can I do it more than they can do it for me? In some sense, it's like a friendly competition to love the other person. Who can win? I think as part of this, though, 
in order for others to mourn with us or rejoice with us, we actually need to talk about things in our lives where we do rejoice or we do mourn. It's easy in church community to only want to share with others that we think might reciprocate. This, I think, is also a call to be open with our lives. And so I think gospel humility drives us uh, to care for others, but not just care for those that we like. Look there at verse 16. I think it called gospel humility pushes us towards those that we are most tempted to avoid. And so we mourn and rejoice, not just with those that we find it easy to do it with, but especially those that we're tempted to, to least do it with. This is real love. But we're not only called to love others, we're called to be zealous as well. You see there? But what does that mean? Well, um, I, I think early on, one of the most difficult things in uh, being a pastor uh, with a number of um, younger people than myself at, at a church is to understand what people are talking about. When I was growing up, people talked in full sentences. Nowadays, they don't really talk in full sentences. And so when I was talking to people younger than myself, they'd go, yeah, I'm too sebes to come to prayer meeting. I'm like, what sebes? Is that, is, that is that in the dictionary? It took me a while to, to realize that sebes represented can't be bothered, but people had acronized, or they, they shortened it. It was just a way that I, I just don't have the energy, I don't have the desire to kind of go along to one of these things. I'm, I'm just sebes. It's something that a lot of, we use it in our household now, it's, Em really likes it. But I think zealousness is actually the direct opposite of being sebes. There you go, guys. Direct opposite of being seen. It's to have a passion and an eagerness in every situation. So if you look at verses 11 to 13, we see that zealousness is, well, the moments in our lives when our focus on God wavers, it's to be people that are keeping spiritual fervor and serving the Lord. In moments when you experience the brokenness of the world, you're to be people that are joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. In moments when the needs of others press in on us, to be zealous is to continue to share with the Lord's people who are in need, to practice hospitality. Zeal is to live faithfully and persevere, even though life is difficult and hard. Even though life is difficult and hard. I think all these actions really are grounded in and fueled by gospel humility. There's just not enough time to kind of look at each one of them, but I do want to talk about one of them in verse 13. It's the idea of sharing with those in need and providing hospitality. See, when we think of the word hospitality, so often in our minds, it's, well, maybe it's inviting people into our house and providing tea or coffee service and maybe even a meal. That's, that's generally what people think about. But then you're kind of thinking, well, what if I don't own a house? Or what if I do own a house, but it's just really not safe to offer people a meal because my cooking skills just ain't up to scratch? What, what do I do then? How do I become hospitable? I think the Old Testament helps us. Israel, the nation of Israel, God's people in the Old Testament were called to show hospitality. Let me read from Leviticus 19, verse 33 to 34. It says this, When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself. For you were foreigners in Egypt. You were foreigners in Egypt. 
See, the rationale behind why Israel were to be hospitable, to show hospitality, is because they know what it means to be an outsider who's been welcomed by God. They were rescued from, from Egypt. They were called by God. They were drawn into His family. Not because they were special or they were worthy, but because God dearly loved them. And so as you look at the dictionary, hospitality is actually defined as the process where an outsider's status is changed from stranger to guest. You get that? It's a status change from stranger to guest. And so in a similar way, hospitality is actually less, or not really about food and drink, though food and drink is often very important. Hospitality is about the process of changing one's status. It's about welcoming the stranger and caring for them so that they become someone that is known, someone that is welcomed, someone that you might even say is a friend. Humility then plays a crucial role in showing hospitality. See, without gospel humility, we start to think that everything we have, all our homes, our resources, our money, our food, it's all ours. And so we're the ones that can choose who or who should not participate or enjoy the fruit of our labor. But with gospel humility, we recognize that God is one who had reached out to us even though we were undeserving. God came to us even though we were outsiders and outcasts. That God has drawn us into His family and provided for us abundantly. And therefore, we reflect this same attitude. And so, whoever you are this morning, I believe you can practice hospitality. If you have a home, then yeah, definitely, you can invite people in. You can provide even a, a great meal. But I think it's less about providing a great meal and cleaning the house, and more about getting to know the person that you invite in changing them from a stranger to a guest. But even if you, like many here, don't have a home, then it's so easy, I think, to practice hospitality. Weekly, we have people visiting our church, looking for a new home, finding, wanting to find out more about Jesus. To practice hospitality, I think, is just to spend time with these people, inviting them along to social activities. And in doing so, getting to know them, you turn them from a stranger into a guest, into a friend. See, friends, whoever you are, you can extend hospitality. Fueled by this recognition that God has reached into your life and transformed it, you can, um, can do the same. You can do the same. So God transforms the way we live in the church, the way we live in community, but lastly, He transforms the way we respond to our enemies. See, Paul recognizes that gospel humility shapes the way that you respond to those that may persecute you. And so in verse 17, he calls people to love their enemies. Instead of responding an eye for an eye or taking revenge, he says, do what is right. Verse 17, seek peace. Verse 18. The first reason he, he says to do this is because God is actually the ultimate judge, not you. And so you should love instead of take revenge. But the second reason he gives is in verse 20 and 21. You ought to act kindly. That means you're to feed the enemy that is hungry, to, to provide drink to those who are thirsty, because why? In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Verse 20. It seems a bit vindictive. That, that doesn't seem very nice. Um, that, that doesn't seem really loving. Uh, what, is this, what does it even mean to, to heap burning coals? 
See, many people think that to heap burning coals is to act so kindly to someone, to respond in love and not to seek revenge, is to act in such a way that will actually bring the other person to shame and remorse because they realize they're such a loser. I guess if you want to prove you're so loving, you're so kind that they, they recognize that actually, hey, I'm actually not that nice a guy. You're so kind and so loving that you actually lead them to conversion. I think this matches what Paul is getting on at in verse 21, overcoming evil with good. See, friends, the basis for, for love and kindness is grounded in humility that the gospel provides. Gospel humility helps us see correctly. And ultimately, we are not the judge, but God is. And that the reality is, if we are honest with ourselves, that we're probably just as corrupt or guilty as the person that perpetrates something against us, and that we would act just like them were it not for the grace and kindness of God. As we see ourselves correctly, we turn outwards to others, not to seek revenge but to turn to them in love and offering them forgiveness. See, friends, whether it's life in the church, life in the community, or in responding to enemies, gospel humility shapes everything that you do. I think the ultimate example of humility is found in Jesus. I want to read to us a passage from Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8. If you want to turn there in your blue pew Bibles, that'd be great, but I'm going to read it for us. Philippians 2, verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Dear friends, in Jesus, he, he not only sets the example of what it means to be humble, his sacrifice means that people are able to respond in humility. In Jesus, we see what true humility is. Jesus lays aside everything that he had, all his rightness for the service of others. He was within his right to declare that people should come and serve and worship him, yet he laid that aside, didn't he? He took on the form of a human. And in the words of the Gospel writer Mark, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As he does give up his life for others, friends, he takes the punishment of their sin. He offers them forgiveness. See, it's in the gospel we start to recognize, if we truly look at ourselves, that we're far more wicked, we're far more evil, we're far more sinful than we would dare ever believe. So often I think of ways in which I am unloving to my wife. I don't want to admit I'm wrong when I really am. And I, would, I don't want to talk about it. But see, friends, Jesus knows everything, the worst things in our lives. And he says to those who are strangers and aliens, I want you to be part of my family. I invite you to be part of my family. Outcasts and outsiders are brought in and clothed with the finest robes and riches of heavens, because of what Jesus has done. It is from this position of great abundance as Christians that we recognize just how undeserving we are. We have everything, though we deserve nothing. And God calls us to respond. 
Why do you care about others? Why do you love others? Why do you serve at church? Why do you forgive others? Paul wants you to see that humility grounded in the gospel is the primary way in which we should drive ourselves to others. In response to this passage, I'd love you to think of one area, be that in church, life and community, responding to friends, in which God is kind of tapping you on your shoulder right now. And obviously God is working in every part of our lives, but so often He brings one incident to to light. You may be thinking right now of, of someone that you're struggling with, difficult relationships, responding to enemies. You might have been coming to Acts 11 for a number of, of, of weeks, months, maybe even years. And the next step for you might be to think about what does it look like for me to participate and serve in the church? Where is God challenging you to respond? See, friends, in response to this, how is humility shaping what you think about? See, for some of us who have been wronged, our instinct so often is to think about retaliating in the most Christian possible way, which kind of goes along, I'm just going to ignore them. I won't like abuse them or, or anything. I'm just going to start distancing myself from them. In my heart, I'm going to start withholding forgiveness. See, this passage is calling you to, to grow in humility that you may turn outwards to love others. And so maybe cultivating humility for those that have enemies might be to recognize that maybe you're just a bit more like them than not like them. It might be that in other areas of your life, to other people, maybe you're just as exactly as selfish and uncaring as they are to you. See, instead of seeking revenge, maybe growing in humility might be to start to pray for them, that they might even see their sinful ways, but also that that you too would be loving to others that you may be sinning against. Maybe for others, you're kind of thinking about life in the church, how may I serve? And your temptation is, what's going to be the most satisfying to me? What's going to be the most, make me feel the most useful? Maybe, maybe, maybe humility and growing in humility is to recognize that, hey, I really want to be placing myself in a position where I can serve regardless of whether I feel personally satisfied or not. It might be faithfulness is to kind of see what's in front of me and respond regardless if you feel equipped or not. Obviously, I think we must be sensible about these things. So if there's a need in music and you can't sing, probably best not to kind of volunteer yourself. But if there's a need to watch children and you have eyes, maybe it's a good thing, right? You don't need much training. I think humility, though, is to, to guide all the things that we should do. Loved and adored by Christ. We know God has reached out to us and so we respond to others. See, friends, where is God calling you to respond this morning? How is humility to shape that? Let's pray that we would be people grounded in gospel humility, that we would respond to Jesus in every area of our lives. Let's pray. The kind, loving, heavenly Father, Uh, We recognize that as we look at ourselves honestly, um, we are probably far more wicked than we would ever dare admit to, to not only others but ourselves. I pray that that you would help us see that, um, but that you would also help us see your love for us. And as you do that, we would be absolutely humbled that you would take an outsider and an outcast 
one who is not deserving of your love and mercy and recognize that we have it freely because of Jesus. And as we start to recognize that, help propel us outwards to love others in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.